I do feel there's some misunderstanding uh, involved here. It reminds me a bit of a, a, a story and uh, I heard Justice Scalia tell. This was several centuries ago and the Pope had decided that all the Jews had to leave the Vatican. And naturally, there was a big uproar from the Jews. So the Pope agreed to debate with a member of their community. If the Jews won, they could stay. If the Pope won, the Jews would leave. Knowing they had no choice, the Jews picked an old rabbi to represent them. His Latin wasn't very good, but he was a man of great faith and well-respected. And the rabbi accepted on the condition that it would be a silent debate. On the day of the great debate, the rabbi and the Pope sat opposite each other. After a minute, minute the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. The rabbi looked back and raised one. The Pope waved his fingers around his head in a circle. The rabbi pointed to the ground. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine. The rabbi pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man's too good. The Jews can stay. As the puzzled cardinals clustered around the Pope, he explained, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity, and he held up one finger to remind me that one God is common to both of our religions. When I waved my finger around me to show that God was all around us, he pointed down to show that God is also right here with us. When I showed him the wine and the wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins, he showed me an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? Meanwhile, the Jews had crowded around the rabbi. What happened, they asked. Well, he said, he said to me, you Jews have three days to leave. So I gave him the finger. <laughs> then he tells me the whole world would be clear to the Jews. So I said to him, we're staying right here. And then, who knows? He took out his lunch and I took out mine. I do think this story bears some relation to the discussion of fusionism. <laughs> a limited one, but it's a very good story. So I, uh, the core idea of fusionism is not that virtue and freedom are fused, but that there are two great truths embodied in Western civilization and the Judeo-Christian ethic. The importance of freedom and the importance of virtue. And neither will likely flourish without the other. My father wrote the quote, the Western tradition bears onward from generation to generation the understanding rooted in the Christian vision of the nature and destiny of man and in the primary value under God of the individual person. From his nature arises his duty to virtue and his inalienable right to freedom as a condition of the pursuit of virtue. Neither virtue nor freedom, but the intellectual combination of virtue and freedom is the sign and spirit of the West, close quote. In another essay, he added, quote, truth withers when freedom dies, however righteous the authority that kills it. And free individualism, uninformed by moral value, rots at its core and soon surrenders to tyranny, close quote. If these quotes are correct, fusionism was not a political alliance designed to fight communism, as important as that effort was. But rather, it is the philosophy which stems from the principles of our civilization and the Judeo-Christian ethic. If that is true, it applies yesterday, today, and tomorrow. With this audience, I want to examine the freedom part, since any of my comments about how virtue is crucial would probably be superfluous here. As for freedom, 
Men and women were created in freedom. Witness Adam and Eve. Christianity was the first religion to believe in individual salvation. And most Christians believe that virtue to be virtuous must be freely chosen. But on the practical side, people are weak and sinful. They often don't use their freedom well. Wouldn't it be better to have a societal structure which supported virtue and limited freedom when that freedom is used to undermine virtue? And in strongly, based, in strongly morally based societies, that may work to some degree for a time. James Fitzjames Stephen, uh, the famous antagonist of John Stuart Mill, uh, and whom my father very much respected, argued well for this position in liberty, equality, fraternity. But what do we do since we clearly have no such moral structure today? Indeed, Stephen, after railing for two pages against one of the modern evils, said, quote, what do I propose to, propose to do in practice? Nothing. The waters are out and no human force can turn them back, but I do not see why as we go with the stream we need cry hallelujah to the river God. So those... Those who argue that virtue without freedom can flourish today need to consider carefully what Stephen said. His vision, the vision of partially enforced virtue, is a challenge even in a homogeneous society with fully shared values. Today, it's hard to make a case that it has a chance of success. And indeed, any attempt to enforce virtue through government has usually led to the opposite result. At the same time, I would note that a commitment to freedom should in no way preclude society and even government from using non-coercive means to promote virtue. So then, how do we counter the very serious challenges we face today from identity politics, wokeism, and the left? I do not subscribe to the idea that practically we can do nothing. Civilization survives and, indeed, survives and indeed flourishes when good citizens rise to such challenges. For inspiration, look at how our country was founded. It was revolutionary in many ways, including a genuine commitment to freedom of thought. Indeed, the founders felt so strongly about freedom of thought and conscience that even though many of them were far, far more religious than most are today, they tolerated heresy. Yes, even heresy which they thought endangered your immortal soul, a far more important matter to them than life or death. But they even tolerated that. They tolerated it not from moral relativism, but because virtue to be virtuous cannot be forced. You don't try to control the minds of others. And they tolerated it because they understood that the effort uh, to control the minds of others will tend to lead to authoritarianism at best and tyranny at worst. So they chose freedom. That was in the full knowledge that long-term success depended on a moral and religious people. Now today, we face a major challenge to our civilization. But in practice, we also see the beginnings of some serious resistance, including rethinking by some on the left. Some of them are rethinking their principles because they hate what they are now seeing. When people are rethinking their basic philosophy, it's a time of opportunity. Witness Barry Weiss and her substack and so many of the other substacks out there now. We can reach far more liberals than we could even a decade ago. And by liberals, I mean American liberals. But to reach them effectively, we must not abandon the core principles of Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian ethic, and the American Constitution. Those principles remain the last best hope of man and the way to inspire the young generation. But only virtue or only freedom will not persuade the young. 
It is our task, yours and mine, to find the words that will persuade the new generation of all these vital principles. Whitaker Chambers was referred to before, famously said, it is the task of each generation, or said in a letter to Bill Buckley, it is the task of each generation to come up with their own words for, for the eternal meaning. In this process, and I'll close with this, remember it's absolutely true that freedom can and often is misused. But at the same time, it is the indispensable predicate to virtue and to faith, and with all of its dangers, perhaps it's God's original gift to man. Thank you. <laughs>